1939, a state of total war had emerged. It would span a period of six years in which two military alliances would be quickly formed, the Allies and the Axis. This would of course be known as the Second World War. More than 30 countries and hundreds of millions of people would become involved, either directly or indirectly. These nations, through every financial, scientific and industrial resource at their disposal towards the ultimate end goal of winning and in turn ending the conflict. It was a war which really had it all. Massacres, mass genocides, strategic bombing, premeditated starvation and disease. And of course, the only ever use of nuclear weapons in combat. It is therefore no surprise that to this day, it is still the deadliest of conflicts in human history, with an estimated number of fatalities somewhere in between the region of 70 to 85 million people. In the early months of the outbreak of the war, Operation Weiserubung, the code name for the Nazi assault on Denmark, was put into motion. The Danes, who had previously declared themselves as neutral, were powerless to stop the German onslaught of their country, and over 3,000 people would lose their lives as a direct result of the six-year occupation. Fast forward to 2017, 72 years after the surrender of Nazi Germany's armed forces, an elderly woman residing at Elv Gordon's elderly home in the small village of Vessingebro, near Sweden's west coast, passes away at the age of 92. She was originally from Denmark, but had lived in the area for the best part of six decades, spending her final years at the home. However, this was no ordinary woman. Grete Batram had been living with a secret. A secret which went all the way back to occupied Denmark in the midst of the Second World War. This is Nordic True Crime. Unlike the occupation of most countries during the Second World War, many Danish institutions were allowed to function to a relatively normal degree from the beginning of the conflict right up until its end in 1945. At the time, both the government and king remained in the country, but endured a considerably uneasy relationship between what was in principle a democratic system trying to function alongside that of a totalitarian system. It all finally came to a head 
when the Danish government stepped down after the Nazis demanded that they introduce the death penalty for acts of sabotage against the regime. Many of these so-called acts of sabotage were down to the bravery and ingenuity of the Danish resistance movement. Although these organizations were set up with the sole purpose of resisting the occupation, they did take time to grow and develop effective tactics. This was partly due to the Nazis' decision to allow the democratic government to remain in situ. However, by the time 1943 was on the horizon, the underground activities of the resistance movement were in full swing. Illegal publications, spying and sabotage were a regular occurrence and were generally carried out by two of the major groups, the BOPA, Civil Partisans, and Holgedanske, a group founded by veteran volunteers from the Winter War who had fought on the side of the Finnish against the Soviet Union. The efforts of these groups and that of smaller resistance groups contributed considerably towards the sabotage effort. It is estimated that they killed around 400 Danish Nazis, informers and collaborators throughout the span of the war. And collaborators, or spies, were something which the movement had to be very wary of. It was one of the utmost threats to their very existence. Spying on your enemy is one thing, but the threat of active enemy spies hiding in plain sight was always a constant danger. Maren Margrethe Grete Bartram was born on the 23rd of February 1924 in Denmark. Grete, as she was known, was the second-born child of eight and grew up in a poor, working-class family in the city of Aarhus, around three hours from the capital city of Copenhagen. Her father Niels had fought for the Germans in the First World War and had suffered from shell shock and struggled to find work, although for a period of time he had managed to run a bicycle repair shop. Her parents were members of the Communist Party of Denmark, the DKP, and the whole family and their circle of friends and acquaintances were very active communists. During her childhood, Grete was integrated into the party and served as a member of the DKP's children and youth organizations. By the age of 13, Grete had left school and entered into the world of employment. She took up a job as a nanny, but it wasn't long before she changed her career path and became a factory worker. At the age of 16, Grete became pregnant and would go on to marry Frode Thomsen, the father of her child. He was a young machine worker whom she had met through the Communist Youth League. But it wasn't long before disaster struck. Frode fell down from a chimney he was repairing and was rushed to hospital with serious injuries. He had broken his back and would spend a fair amount of time in hospital, 13 months to be exact. The sickness benefit was not great. 
barely sufficient enough for Grete, Frode and their son to survive on. And on his return to the family home, Grete had sold almost everything they had owned. The marriage would not last much longer and indeed ended in the summer of 1943. Living below the poverty line was common at the time. Grete's family were certainly not the only ones. And it is thought that through these early life experiences, she developed a drive to make money and to advance within the social classes. And this would perhaps go a long way towards to explaining what the 18-year-old girl was about to do. With next to no money in her pocket and a son to provide for, Greta made a decision that would forever change her life. In September of 1942, a shop in her hometown of Aarhus had been burned to the ground. It was an act of sabotage, as this was no ordinary shop. This particular establishment supplied uniforms to the Wehrmacht in Germany. A newspaper had appealed for people to come forward and supply any details they may have in regards to who may have been involved in the arson attack on the shop. There was a reward of 1,000 Danish crowns, and it was that which caught Greta's eye. She would later say, quote, It was an unimaginable fortune. My brother knew those who had done it, and I went to the police with my information. But unbeknown to her, her brother Christian, the person she had received the information from, had actually helped to start the fire by procuring a petrol can from his father's workshop. So he, along with three others, were transported to Germany where they would stand trial. Grete used the money to buy a new crib for her son, new shoes for herself and a coat for her sister. Christian received one year in a German prison, whereas his accomplices received a sentence of 10 years each. The Danish police had originally taken Greta's statement in regards to who was involved in the fire at the shop. But it wasn't long before the Germans had taken over the investigation, something which she would later admit she knew would happen. Young Greta had come to the attention of the Gestapo, and they liked what they saw. With her roots in the Communist Party and close ties to the resistance movement, she was seen as the perfect infiltrator. Her first act of betrayal meant that she was now in the firm grip of the Nazis. Her contact was Hermann Rothenberg, the chief of the German secret police, who incidentally would later die in an air attack by the British on the Gestapo headquarters in Aarhus. And it was him who was one of the few people who was aware of her real identity. Others only knew her by her codename, Thora. She was now regularly supplying the Gestapo with valuable information on the activities of the resistance but she was no longer doing it as a way of making ends meet. She was now earning good money as a result of the information she was supplying. 
She was even enjoying the work she carried out for her new employers. It didn't take long before Grete started to become very good at her new career as an infiltrator. More and more members of the resistance were arrested and her comrades were none the wiser. She was never suspected. She would go on to provide so much information for the Gestapo that by the summer of 1944, the activities of the resistance were almost completely neutralized. So many members had been arrested that the organization was in complete disarray. Not only did they not suspect Grete, they even had the utmost confidence in her, so much so that she was sent to Copenhagen in order to meet members of the movement to establish new leadership for the Aarhus branch of the organization. Not only was she good at what she did, she was also very clever and perhaps somewhat lacking in the levels of fear that we would associate with most people. She had even worked part-time as a life-drawn model, posing naked for men and women who would sit and sketch her. These would-be artists, like Grete, were also members of the Danish resistance movement, but unlike her, they were not informants for the Gestapo. The group of wannabe artists even included people who Grete would go on to betray. In order to further diffuse any possible lingering thoughts of suspicion, on her return from Copenhagen, she arranged for Rottenberg to publicly arrest her outside a shop in Aarhus. There was one problem with the sham arrest. This was a tactic which was very rarely deployed by the Gestapo. They had, of course, regularly arrested double agents or spies and placed them in jail on a temporary basis, along with real members of the resistance. But they tended not to carry out these arrests in such a public manner. The plan backfired. Instead of further securing her position within the movement, the arrest had the opposite effect. Suspicion began to fall on her. Had she overthought the situation? Soon after the staged arrest, she was released and returned to the streets of Aarhus to continue her double life. But suspicion continued to grow. The fake arrest, coupled with the money she was making, did not add up. Her double life was beginning to unravel. They decided that action had to be taken. The L Group was a resistance organization in Denmark during the Second World War, who was tasked with assassination of Danish collaborators as well as German forces occupying Denmark. The group was established in 1940, but was most active in the last couple of years of the conflict. It was estimated that they carried out at least 18 assassinations and killed between 20 to 30 people they soon had Grete Batram in their sights. But there was one problem. They had an important mission the same day that Grete was due to be assassinated. So the task was handed over to one of the less experienced members, a decision which more than likely saved Grete from certain death. 
As she was walking down the street, she felt a hammer blow to the back of her head. It turned out to be a bullet from a pistol, which entered through her neck and lodged itself inside her jawbone. But the caliber of the weapon used by the perpetrator was far too small to cause the required damage. It could almost be described as a dummy or a fake gun. Grete was rushed to the local hospital, but was soon transferred to a field hospital in Germany. The Gestapo were worried that one of their prized assets was in danger of further assassination attempts. She soon recovered from her injuries. She had cheated death and it wouldn't be the last time she would do so. She returned to work, but this time she was sent to Germany by the Gestapo in order to spy on German soldiers and weed out any potential informants for the Allies. The Battle of Stalingrad was catastrophic for the Nazis. The Axis forces were encircled by the Red Army and Hitler's refusal to allow a retreat led to the deaths of 200,000 German and Romanian soldiers. Losses continued to mount after Stalingrad, leading to a sharp reduction in popularity of the Nazi party. The writing was on the wall, especially when the American, British and Canadian forces established a front in France with the D-Day landings in Normandy in June of 1944. On the 30th of April, during the Battle of Berlin, when Soviet troops were within just two blocks of the Führbanka, both Hitler and his wife Eva Braun committed suicide. Between the 4th and 8th of May 1945, most of the remaining German armed forces had unconditionally surrendered. Grete was in a precarious situation. She realized that she couldn't return to Denmark and that the Allied forces would soon be closing in. She cycled 60 miles southeast to Kolding to seek refuge at the Gestapo offices, but it was all in vain. The offices were deserted. She was stopped and arrested. All that awaited her was a trial in her home country of Denmark. After the liberation of Denmark, the Danes wanted revenge on those who had betrayed their country to the Nazis, and as a result of this, the death penalty was reinstated. Grete's original trial date was delayed as it turned out that she was pregnant, which, according to her, was caused by one of her two prison guards, both of whom were later sent to prison. The Danish public was baying for blood. The newspapers even ran with the headline, The Beast in Human Form. This was very much understandable, as there were a number of motives for the apprehension and trial of suspected Nazi collaborators like Grete. To avenge those murdered, especially those murdered on ethnic grounds during the Holocaust, and of course, the natural desire to see those who were responsible brought to justice and categorized as criminals 
by a court of law were two particular motives which were at the forefront of the general public's desire. When the trial finally began, it came to light that Grete had informed on 53 people. Of that total, 15 had been tortured and 35 had wound up in concentration camps, with 8 dead or reported missing. However, it is suspected that she reported up to as many as 70 people. Amongst them, her ex-husband, close friends and relatives. She pled guilty to almost everything she had been accused of. However, there was one claim which she contested. A mental statement was prepared at the trial by the county physician, which concluded that Grete was gifted, but at the same time a psychopath of the amoral type who was self-assertive and boastful to an imaginative and deceitful level, without any inhibition of any kind. In addition to this, she had to be also considered as a somewhat emotionally cold individual. And this is what irked her. When made aware of the statement from the physician, she protested, particularly in regards to being described as a cold individual. On the 29th of October 1946, Grete Batram was sentenced to death at the Aarhus Criminal Court. The judgment was later upheld by the Western High Court on the 22nd of February 1947 and by the Supreme Court on the 4th of September of the same year. In his closing proceedings, the prosecutor said, quote, One cannot look at the bottom of another human soul but we have seen an abyss of bluntness, cynicism, and vanity. The double life captivated her. She was young, but not immature. She has knifed her comrades, friends, and adorned herself with the Judas money she earned. On behalf of the prosecutor's office, and on behalf of society, I implore that the strictest sentence of the law, the death penalty, be applied. Notably, at the Supreme Court, three of the 11 judges wanted to serve life imprisonment and not the death penalty, as they emphasized that she had not immediately seen the consequences of her actions and that she was very young when she had committed her first criminal act. The last Danish woman to be executed was Anne-Katharina Andersdotter, who was beheaded in 1861 for the murder of her three children something which was carefully considered in regards to Grete's sentence. In the end, along with the only other woman convicted at the original trial, Anna Lund Lorentzen, the original death sentence was reduced to life imprisonment at the pardon of Justice Niels Busch Jensen on the 9th of December 1947. Greta had cheated death once again. Several factors were taken into consideration in regards to the final judgment. Her age at the time of the offence, that she was raised in an anti-religious, communist and materialistic spirit, and that she had been suffering from financial difficulties. The Minister of Justice went on to state, quote, 
There is no evidence that the police would have refused to shoot a woman, but most people believe that one should not do so. Collaboration with the Nazis in occupied countries during the Second World War was very common, possibly more common than people would like to remember. Some citizens and organizations promoted by factors such as nationalism, ethnic hatred, anti-communism, anti-Semitism, opportunism and self-defense knowingly collaborated with the Axis powers. In doing so, war crimes, crimes against humanity or atrocities were sometimes directly or indirectly committed. When Germany invaded Denmark, the Danish government surrendered in the belief that resistance was pointless, which is understandable considering Denmark's size and power in comparison to its neighbor, hoping that an agreement could be made with the Germans in regards to their direct cooperation. And it kind of worked. As a result of this, the Nazis claimed that they would respect Danish sovereignty and territorial integrity, as well as neutrality. This certainly helped to create a favorable relationship between the Danes and Germans at the time, at least in the beginning. The acceptance to work with the Germans would have no doubt made it much easier and understandable to an extent for ordinary Danish people to see the Germans in a different light and in turn find it easier to cooperate with them. Back in 2002, it came to light that the extent of Denmark's collaboration with the Nazis during the Second World War may have been much greater than previously thought. A sealed national archive was claimed to have contained the names of up to 300,000 Danish Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, according to leading historian Klaus Brüld, professor of modern history at Roskilde University in Denmark, who headed the group of historians wanted the sealed national archive open so that the real truth could be gauged. Elsewhere, Denmark's wartime record is generally portrayed in a positive light, but Professor Brüld claimed that much of the country's industry and agriculture collaborated with the Nazis for the sake of earning more money. As well as this, 12,000 Danes had also fought in a regiment for the Nazis against the Russians. He said, quote, I'm not talking about printing all 200,000 or 300,000 names but historians and the public should have access to them. There may be revealing information in the files on the royal family. There were very intimate relations between leading German officials and leading Danish ones. A moral perspective was totally absent. Greta Batram would spend 10 years in prison before being somewhat quietly released in October of 1956, where she moved to Sweden, living out the rest of her life whilst keeping her secret close to her chest. She moved in with a female friend 
and started a small but successful fishing equipment business. Despite living out the rest of her life in anonymity, she was always looking over her shoulder in the fear that someone would knock on her door and finish the job which was unsuccessfully carried out back in the 1940s. In fact, in 1967, Marie Hansen, a woman who was roughly Greta's age, was murdered in Aarhus in very mysterious circumstances. It was readily thought that the murder was a case of mistaken identity and that the intended victim was of course Grete. Over the years, she had been tracked down by various journalists from time to time, desperate to get her side of the story for a big newspaper exclusive. However, she continually pleaded with them to leave her be so that she could get on with the rest of her life in peace. In a rare interview with the Danish newspaper Berlinske, she claimed that she regretted her actions and that when she had been released from Hosered prison and moved to Sweden, she was not the same person as she was during the war. She said, quote, A maturing process took place during the period that I was in prison. I was a different person that moved to Sweden. It's obvious that a person who has experienced what I have should wish it had never taken place. In 2010, a play about her story was performed in her hometown of Aarhus, and journalists from the same newspaper traveled to Sweden to meet her to see if she would give an interview in regards to said play. They had not contacted her via phone in the fear that she would point-blank refuse to speak to them, but to their surprise, on arrival, she invited them into her farmhouse. She sat down with the journalists and began to speak. I can't understand why this would be of interest to the newspapers. It is so, so long ago. The visitors explained that they were still unsure of why she did what she did and would like to understand. That is why the interest was still there. They asked her if she did it because of her husband's workplace injury and the family's newfound unfortunate financial situation and asked if the family were struggling to put food on the table. She replied, No, I wouldn't say that. But money was very sparse. We had so little to live on, and it was then that I saw the reward of 1,000 Danish crowns promised to the person who could supply information on the fire at the store. That's how it all started. If I hadn't done it, then I wouldn't be here today. They then asked her how she felt about going to the police. Greta answered, Oh, it's been so many years ago and some of what I say may be wrong, but I don't think I had any problems with it. There was a crime and the Danish police were giving money to those who could help. I got 1,000 crowns and that money we could live on for months. The one thing during the interview which she became particularly flustered about, was the mention of the word Gestapo. She couldn't even bring herself to say the word and seemed to completely forget everything to do with her relationship with the German secret police. The journalists decided to push her further and even mentioned her close relationship with Rottenberg, the Gestapo chief. 
but she simply claimed to not remember him or even the name. She was then asked about her life in Sweden, to which a clearly concerned and much more alert Greta replied. Neither my neighbors nor my friends know about my past. I ask you to earnestly not write anything that can ruin my life here. An interesting choice of words for someone who ruined so many lives through her actions during the Nazi occupation of Denmark. Maren Margrethe Thomsen, the war criminal, who informed on her brother, ex-husband and close friends, passed away on the 31st of January 2017 at the age of 92. The investigation into the high school massacre Parkland is... high school massacre. At least 14 dead, 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting. That includes a suspected gunman. Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. We will discuss the whys the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon. And please subscribe to Active Shooter. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic and shocking stories that I have uncovered in my own profession. You'll hear about murder, abduction, hijack, misconduct, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, and much, much more. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, an apple for the teacher is for you. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. So join me as I present People Behaving Badly, The Bad Apples. Looking forward to seeing you soon. But until then, remember to be a good apple.